Hi, my name is Robert Perez, and uh, the title of my message today is Confessions of an East L.A. Preacher, and I hope this blesses you. So the open, opening line to the Harbor 2021, the 77th Annual Pepperdine Bible Lectures called, called and Sent, The Vital Role of the Church, begins with these words. It's easy to pick apart the church's weaknesses. Certainly the newest numbers from the Pew Research Center about continued declines in churches, at least in the United States, are jolting. But here is the little ray of hope. Here is the message for us to continue to go forward. And this is what Mike Cope wrote as his introduction to this lectureship. But despite its flaws, the church is still the people of God. So dear God, bless us as we share these words together, as I share these words with uh, the people that are listening. Bless those ministers who are struggling and feel that um, our message isn't vital, but it is. So God bless us, and all God's people always say, Amen. So Mike Cope, our director's opening message, reminded me of a similar line from the 2003 movie Luther, played by Joseph Finnis. And for those of you that don't know about Luther or need a quick refresher, today, March 6th, the day I'm recording this, 2021, is exactly 500 years from the day that Luther was summoned Um, to Germany or to Worms, and this summon reached the hand of the emperor of Germany, Charles V. So, as Martin was summoned to Worms to testify, in his words, on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ, an interesting take on this summon and his preparation was a scene from the movie that I'd like to share with you as I introduce my topic. In the 2003 movie, Luther, as Johann van Stalpitz, Luther's spiritual father and mentor, prepares Luther for his encounter with his enemies or his opponents, used very similar words to what Mike shared with us in the opening of this lectureship, or the opening message. And here's what he said. Martin, I hoped you'd help reform the church, not destroy it. With all its sins, the church is still the church. Just like Mike said, with all its flaws, the church is still the people of God. He continues, What is a child without its family? How would people fare left to themselves, helpless and frightened? All my life I have seen a world that hates evil more than it loves good. I beg you to look to the good, Martin. You are tearing the world apart. And it's at this point in the movie that Luther realizes the cost and he grabs or grabs his mentor's arm or his wrist and says this to him, Do you think that day 
when you sent me out so boldly to change the world, did you really think it would come without a cost? And I guess that's my message to you today. That as we share about the church with all its weaknesses and all its flaws in 2021, and wherever you're ministering, do you think, or did we think when we began our ministries that it would come without a cost? And that is what I believe Paul the Apostle's message to his protege, Timothy, towards the end of the apostolic era, which reminded me of the very similar situation that we are in right now. We are in a transition in our history of the churches in the United States and maybe throughout some of the places in the world where the church is transitioning from one stage to the next. And in the early church, after 30 or 40 years of vibrant ministry, the church is in a similar situation. The early church is in a transition of transitioning from the apostolic era to you might call the next gen, the next generation of preachers. So, in a quick bullet point form, here is a little bit of the background and history of this transition. As the first century church transitions from the apostolic era into the next generation of leaders, the Apostle Paul, after 14 years of ministry with Timothy, when he met him that first or second missionary journey in 51 AD, when he met Timothy for the first time and asked him and the church recommended Timothy to go on the missionary journeys with him, with him, 14 years later, Paul writes 1 Timothy in about 65 AD and he reminds him to stay in Ephesus. And here's the text. 1 Timothy 1.3 states this, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, one more time, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, Stay in Ephesus. For those of you that are listening, man your post. Stay in Ephesus. So that you may command certain men or certain people not to teach false doctrines any, any longer. Staying is harder than one might think. But I feel that it is the message that our younger generations need to see, our younger generation of leaders and preachers that are coming up, the millennials, you might say, need to see men like us that have been through the battles that we stay and don't quit when things get tough. So Paul reminds Timothy, his protege, to stay in Ephesus in spite of Paul being in prison. An interesting side note, that same year that 1 Timothy, at least what I'm writing here, are saying that Timothy was written, it was that same year that Peter, the apostle, may have just been martyred in Rome. So, after 1 Timothy is sent to him, Paul leaves for Ephesus 
probably from Rome. And on the way, he's arrested in Troas. That's from 2 Timothy 4.14. It doesn't say it explicitly, but it is implied implicitly. Timothy hears about Paul's arrest and is probably discouraged. Maybe not so much that Paul is arrested, but maybe he's discouraged or ashamed to continue the ministry knowing that it's going to come with a cost to even his own life. So Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus to write with the second letter of, to Timothy a year later in 66 AD, and that's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And let me read that. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, he's telling Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, my scrolls and especially the parchments. And then he gives, here's the hint that Paul was arrested. Alexander the metal worker did me, great, did me a great deal of harm, and the Lord will repay him for what he has done. And the Lord will repay him for what he has done. And Paul tells him, you should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So, Timothy leaps into action and takes Paul's cloak. One more time. Timothy leaps into action and takes Paul's cloak takes Paul's cloak and scrolls from Troas to Rome before Paul's martyrdom. That's in about 67 A.D. One last note. As I mentioned, as this apostolic era is coming to an end, Peter has now met his martyrdom. Paul is next. And one of the last apostles, John, the last apostle alive moves to Asia at the start of the Jewish revolt in 67 AD. And when he moves to Asia, he is shipped to the island of Patmos as a prisoner. So it is no wonder that Timothy, and maybe you and I have to count the costs on a day-to-day basis to continue to go forward in our ministries. So with that in mind, I'd like to go into 2 Timothy and read the theme verse of my dissertation, which was in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and then go over what I call the seven magnificent imperatives that Paul uses to inspire, to, I guess, compel, to urge not only Timothy, but to urge you and I to continue on with this vital ministry. And the first part, I guess, my point is, Paul is trying to inspire us to be called or to rekindle the flame that's in our hearts. Or at least that was in our hearts when we first started our ministries. I'll read from chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2 says this, You then, my son, be strong. And the word in Greek, I know this is for nerds and guys like me that like to study all this, but it's a present Passive and middle participle. Meaning you continually to be strong. 
Not just strong right then, but you have to continue to fight and be strong. And notice what he tells them to be strong in. You then, my son, he calls Timothy his son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I love that. It's God's grace that God calls us to be strong in. And here's my theme verse for my dissertation. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men or to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And then the next verse, he tells them the cost that it will take to continue the ministry. And he reminds them, he says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier, like a good athlete, like a hard-working farmer. And he gives all those analogies to remind Timothy that there is a cost in continuing the gospel. And those are just three of what I call the seven magnificent imperatives. An imperative is simply a practical suggestion in form of a command to inspire, to push, to encourage this minister whose work in the church is so vital because if he quits, maybe the church in Ephesus goes down and the church is fragile. The church was fragile back then just as it is right now. So he tells them just a quick review of those seven magnificent imperatives. And maybe this would be encouraging to you. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. The first imperative, just to be very clear, is be strong. Chapter 2, verse 1. The second imperative is don't do it alone to entrust to reliable men, to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. That's entrusting the gospel so the next generation will continue. Paul knew that. His time was up, he says. I have fought the good fight in chapter 4. I have finished the race. And he's telling Timothy, now it's your turn and you're going to be in my position as the leader. And then you have to look down the line for leaders in the future and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So the second imperative is to entrust the gospel. 2 verse 2. Chapter 2 verse 3. Join with me in suffering. And I counted that verse, join with me in suffering, combined it with chapter 1 verse 8 because he shares that same exact verse in chapter 1 verse 8 when he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, and here's that word, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So I counted those two as one. So if we count them, be strong, number one, and trust, number two. Join with me in suffering is number three, and that's mentioned twice. And then if you look a little farther down in verse seven of chapter two, he says, reflect on what I'm saying. That's an imperative. Think about it. Consider seriously. Think about your ministry and what you're doing or what I'm doing and reflect on it. For the Lord will give you insight into all this. And then one of my favorite imperatives is remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. And then he states one of my favorite lines in almost all of the New Testament. 
for which I am suffering. Let me back up. This is my gospel. Verse 9, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but the word of God is not chained. You can be thrown in prison. People could be telling you to, I guess, sell your church, quit. But look what he says. He tells Timothy, the word of God is not changed. Chained. So don't be discouraged. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So just look at in those seven verses, there are, there are five imperatives, five practical suggestions to not give up. Be strong and trust. Join with me in suffering. Reflect and remember Jesus Christ. And the other two in chapter 1 is chapter 1, verse 13. What you're what you have heard from me, and he says, keep as a pattern of sound teaching. Timothy knew how to preach because Paul modeled it. And I pray that people in your churches learn how to preach because you and I are modeling how to preach the gospel. And not just with our words, but with our lifestyle. So that's the sixth imperative, one thirteen. What you heard me, what you have heard me, excuse me, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith, and notice what he says, with faith and with love in Christ Jesus. And then the last imperative in this first section of First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter one guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted you, entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So those are seven, what I call, magnificent imperatives in chapter two or chapter one of Second Timothy. But one of the areas that I've learned in this topic of being called and sent is. One, you have to start by being called. I guess that's my first point. We have to be called. That's what the title of this lectureship is, Called and Sent. The second part is once you're called, you have to continue to man your post because when you are called, guess what? Then you're in, I guess, the good fight. And the second part of being called is why I shared the story of Luther. Do you think that when you sent me out that day so boldly to change the world, do you think it would really come without a cost? Because in chapter 2, verse 14 of 2 Timothy, Paul reminds him with seven more magnificent imperatives of what the cost will be. And let's read it. 2.14 says, Keep reminding God's people... Remember we said the church with all its weaknesses is still the people of God? And look what he says here. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God and, excuse me, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. So that's another imperative. Keep reminding him. He's telling Timothy not to give up. The second imperative is in verse 15. Remember, this is the second set of magnificent imperatives. Do your best. 
God doesn't want us to do a mediocre job. He wants us to do our best. And that's what it says in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. And I love this, who correctly handles the word of truth. So that's the second magnificent imperative. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. And then he names out, he singles out Hamanaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth in verse 18. Then down in verse 22 is the next imperative. This is the fourth one. Flee evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness. There's two of them. Flee and pursue. Oh, and the other one that I skipped in verse 19b, turn away from wickedness. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. One more time. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And the last imperative is an important one for me right now on this day of March 6. Don't have anything. He's telling us, stop fighting. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments or ignorant arguments. Because you know, and this is important to me, and I'll explain right now in a little illustration. Don't have anything to do with ignorant foolish arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And here's what he tells us as ministers of the gospel, as people who are supposed to be the light of the world. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach. Did you get that? Did I get that? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, he must gently instruct. Or opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who are captive to do his will. So I guess that's my message to you. The two points is accept your calling with those first seven magnificent imperatives. Be strong, remember, entrust, join with me, reflect, guard, keep. And then in chapter 2, 14 and following, keep reminding them, do your best, avoid godless chatter, turn away, flee, pursue righteousness, and don't have anything to do with ignorant arguments. So back to Mike Cope's, or maybe Johann von Stoppitz's, words to Luther. The church, with all its weaknesses, is still the church, is still the people of God. The part that I skipped when Mike said that in the opening line of the 2021 Harbor Lectures, let me just read it from the beginning. Mike Cope's opening lines were these. It's easy to pick apart the church with all its weaknesses, but despite 
its flaws. The church is still the people of God. And here's the part that I skipped the first time that I'd like to end this talk with. The church is still the people of God, rescued by God through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus for the mission of God's Spirit in the world. Yes, there are mind-numbing inconsistencies, but there are also heroic acts of love. May God make us all equal to the task of being called and sent. And I'd like to end this talk with my concluding paragraph of my doctoral dissertation on trying to generate trust between two language groups in the Church of Christ in Santa Paula. And here's what I wrote. And maybe this will encourage you to continue on. When looking at the amount of labor involved in generating trust in a multi-ethnic church with multi-ethnic elders, one may feel overwhelmed and be tempted to pursue an easier, homogeneous, mono-ethnic church model. model. Leaders may feel it is impossible to build trust in multi-ethnic churches with multi-ethnic elders, especially in the midst of the alienation, distrust, hostility from cultural, educational, theological, and even political differences that often exist between ethnic groups, as we can see what's going on in our nation right now. Now, my, answer, my question to you, or my answer to this, is this. It is impossible, apart from the grace of God. But it is precisely, precisely this issue that demonstrate, demonstrates the power of the gospel in a fractured world that is desperately seeking reconciliation. So the church is under covenant, covenantal obligation to trust and obey. Ephesians 4 says, Make every effort to keep the unity and bond of peace and the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. Because the Santa Paula community, hopefully your community, and the world needs this kind of church. May God bless you. Thank you.